0: What the pandemic brought to light was obviously these issues and just equity and who gets what, who has access to what, who's experiencing what at this point in time, and how much have we looked over it, neglected it, and let it get to a stage where it's kind of crappy for a lot of groups of people. So so I just think that's what the pandemic highlighted is these inequities in just humanity and in anything that we do and different systems and structures that are in place.
1: Hello, world, and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today, we'll be chatting with Olivia Ghosh-Swaby, a PhD student in the Neuroscience Program at Western University in London, Ontario. She is one of the recipients of this year's prestigious Vanier Canada Graduate Scholarship, yay, (laughs) and is one of the founding members of Brain Matter Chatter, a powerful podcast on mental health in academia. She is also the executive director of the Ontario Women's Intercollegiate Football Association, Canada's largest university women's football league. I am so excited to chat with Olivia today about her research, her podcast, and so much more. But let's start from the very beginning. Olivia, what's your story? Oh,
0: you get me with that question every time I hear it. (laughs) So where am I going to start? I'm going to start probably for my science career. Grade 11. The reason being is that's the first time I actually met an academic uh, teaching, though, in high school. So I don't know how I feel about that now. It's a whole other <laughs> story. But um, she actually obtained her master's degree in biology and... Her class was notorious for being one of the hardest, and I enjoyed being in it because it challenged me. Uh, It gave me a chance to really try to be the the smart one in class because I was definitely a keener, Uh, and I loved being challenged, and I I just loved the science component. So this was the first time I felt, okay, I kind of have to prove myself to this academic, and so I fell in love with science, even though I had moments where I was not doing very well, uh, but to just kind of give it a go and to start thinking above and beyond others, which is what higher education really challenges. And I don't think I realized that until my third year in university. But uh, when you kind of get a taste of it early enough, it's like, okay, really, is this for me? Uh, Is this really what the science world looks like? If that's where I want to go. But what really solidified my career after that was more personal. So, Mm As I moved through high school, I mean, one component of that was my courses. The other component was my sports career, which we'll get yeah. into later. But the third element of that was moving through uh, a personal affair where a close member, family member of mine, actually my cousin, was diagnosed with a neurological uh, disorder. And it kind of brought me into the neuroscience world and mm. really understanding the level and complexity of the brain. And I think that's when I was like, either I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a scientist. It was one or, one or the other. With the neurological disorder, it's known as lissencephaly, where essentially she was born with a smooth brain. Um, and we had no clue anything was wrong until we started to see developmental delays at approximately the three-month mark and uh, my aunt noticed this kind of change in her behavior where it was kind of this blinking and hand movement pattern that turned out to actually be seizures or spasms and so she was smart enough to bring her daughter into uh, emergency and then that's when there was a lot of tests it was a long journey overnight I made a trip to Ottawa because I was in Toronto at the time and We waited, Uh, neurologists were coming in and out, and that's when we finally... Uh, learn the diagnosis so uh, sensitively. It's like a one in a million uh, genetic related disorder, neurological disorder, and it, it showed the importance of grooves in the brain, which many people take for don't uh, take for advantage because it's something that we all are fortunate to have. But when they're gone, it's really hard to retain information to learn and to develop all the different milestones that you see as you grow up uh, as an infant, and so. Sh- we were fortunate enough to have her around with us. A year was her diagnosis, or her, where we expected her to pass, but she ended up living till about three years of age, three three and a half. Uh, so, I learned a lot. I was a part of her care. I got to see the resilience of my aunt, and I got to see kind of the patient and family and child interaction and understanding the importance of fundamental science to really answer some of these questions which were very much and still not so much answered on the the disease of or the the disorder of lecensively but it didn't necessarily shape exactly the research i do now it definitely told me that i'm fortunate to be where i am today that i need to continue taking uh, advantage of any opportunity that i get because it not everyone gets them right and and this was in my final year of high school into kind of my first and second year where we're going through her life yeah I understood that I needed to keep grinding and I needed to keep working hard not just for her but for my whole family and I could go even further back because my mom is the one who kept pushing me to focus on my education and something that I'll always have for the rest of my life
1: That's really beautiful.
0: Yeah. She was a single mom, so she, she, like, didn't get the same opportunities I did because she had to take care of me at at the young age of 19, so she was, like... You, you gotta, you gotta stay smart. You gotta really open up doors for yourself and, uh, kind of don't repeat the same mistakes that I did. And so everything that I worked for was for her, for my cousin, for my family. Um, and we struggled in that time in both instances as I was a, young and even with my, uh, with my aunt and her daughter. And so now moved into university enough, Came in as a strong leader and something that I took very much pride in, Uh, advocate, athlete, uh, applied to the scholarships. Western really snagged me (laughs) early and I'm still here eight years later because of scholarship uh, that recognized that work that I did beyond just the grades, but also uh, the leadership and community involvement. And it's continued up until now, and I'm in a PhD in neuroscience, and I have the same similar recognition with the Vanier Scholarship as I did when I entered university. So mm-hmm. it's now just kind of carrying that momentum and paving ways for others. But there's a lot of other identities that cross in there <laughs> that I haven't jumped into, but that's kind of the quick summary of my story, at least for where things started with science and neuroscience.
1: And wow, thank you for sharing that. I know it, it sounds like it's a deeply personal story as well. Do you know what pulled you into the research side of things? Because one could have just as easily been pulled into pure medicine. Oh, yeah. Was there something about research that really got you going or got you intrigued?
0: What I enjoyed the most about research really is the fact that I could keep asking questions that I was interested in <laughs> without having to kind of stick to the the coursework and whatever you need to have the adequate training to be a physician, I guess. I'm a bit of a uh, multitasker. Maybe I'll go with that or I say yes too much. And (laughs) so what's nice about being a student and kind of an academic is you can take on a bit more than just the research itself. You can be involved in other aspects of community-engaged work or... Uh, working in sport, for example, which is something I prioritize, mm-hmm. and developing all these skill sets that can go back into my research career and honestly any other career. But I think that's what su- sucked me in was the fact that I could ask those questions. And then after that, it was more so okay, what part or what area of neuroscience do I think I can have the greatest impact? Mm-hmm. And with the research component, I can keep doing that in different ways with different experiments in different populations, uh, whether that be basic science with rodents or eventually in humans because I'm big on translation. Mm -hmm. And then um, eventually I might end up in a career in in medicine, but (laughs) this is also the the limbo I am as a third-year PhD student is thinking of where do I want to go next. And and it has creeped up again. Do I want to go down the medicine route?
1: Is there anything that's deterring you from that?
0: Oh man, PhD, I'm going to be honest and I again this podcast on mental health with BMC really helps shape kind of these conversations. It's it's hard, holy yeah. moly. Yeah. It's a lot on your on you as an individual, on your own self-motivation, on finding the right mentors and right allies to get you oh, yeah. into the best position to be successful uh and uh, knowing Where to go next? How to get those grants? And always thinking of grants and scholarships to actually right to actually sustain your career. Uh, And that part is a bit daunting at times, uh, and it can be a lot uh, mentally. But I think at the same time, I think I would be a really great doctor after the experiences that I've gone through and physician in that sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet I don't know if I want to do more school. That's one question and. If um, I want to stay in academia in the sense of that pressure to to move out into something that has a bit more certainty, but still quite a bit of grind behind it. Mm -hmm. So you win some, you lose some. And that's something I'm thinking about at this point in my career.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Well, you talked a little bit about asking the questions of research. What is it that you actually study? Yeah, so my big thing
0: is understanding or exploiting these endogenous processes of boosting neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. So some really great processes that exist related to neuroplasticity in our brain is neurogenesis. So it's this formation of new neurons in adulthood. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we often think when when a neuron dies, it dies, which is correct. But we also do have these small pools or little niches of areas in the brain that form new neurons when we're older. So not all hope is lost in terms of regenerating what you may have lost. And so I want to exploit this process and figure out ways to use neuroplasticity as a tool to enhance cognition and memory and learning. And the tools or therapies that I'm looking at specifically that target these processes are things as simple as exercise, which is translational, yes. right? It's something that we can do in both the rodent and in the human, mm-hmm. which is why I really want to prioritize something like that to under, to really find uh, what it, what's happening at the cellular level in the brain and plastic, plasticity-wise with exercise. Mm-hmm. And the second that kind of crept up is exercise memetics. And there was actually this really great review paper uh, that talked about some of these memetics. So one that continuously came up in the literature that caught my attention mm-hmm. were anti-diabetic therapies. And one and specifically is metformin because it tends to target this process of neurogenesis and forming these new neurons. Mm. And then on top of that, it helps with some of these other metabolic risk factors that that we see in obesity. And we know how uh, obesity is fairly rampant in our population, especially in Western countries yeah. and Canada being one of them. So one, I'm looking at, okay, exercise, great as a tool in itself and anyone healthy or un. Unhealthy or with neurodegenerative disease. But two, it's also great in obesity, which is another big area of focus of mine. And then these anti diabetic therapies that kind of serve these same functions. It can help you lose weight, but also boost this area in the brain yeah. uh, of neurogenesis and then reduce some of these other factors like inflammation. So I, I, I focus on those processes and kind of the outcome of that is moving from the rodent which I've done quite a bit of work in up it, up to these 3 years now mm-hmm. and starting to look at that in a clinical human population which is what I'm working on currently mm-hmm. which is exercising at those or elderly uh, participants who are at risk for diabetes, and those are the ones who tend to carry these attributes of being obese or overweight, uh, have dysregulated, uh, for example, glucose levels or hypertension, etc., and see if we can reverse some of these cognitive deficits we see with kind of, uh, with obesity and other diabetes-related or metabolic-related disorders, uh, and especially when they're older, mm-hmm. treat it with exercise and see these cognitive improvements and Uh, We do some cool things to look at cognition and I use Mm touchscreens and what's even cooler is that you can use touchscreens in a a mouse. So a mouse (laughs) will literally use their nose to play with the screen (laughs) and I can test and look at their cognition. But what's even better is the work that I'm doing now translating into the human side is I can use those exact same touchscreen tasks in the humans and I can say, okay, if our findings are fairly similar in this uh, population, that means my rodent work is fairly representative of what we might see in a clinical human population. So that's, that's a little bit of the
1: run-of-the-mill of what I do. That's amazing. And I love how translational it is. It's something that I've always appreciated. About a lot of the neuroscience programs around Canada is that there's always this push. Mm -hmm. How do we make this applicable to our human population? I love that. And congratulations on the vanier. That is amazing. (laughs) I saw your photo pop across my Twitter feed and I was just like, yes. I love that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right? And I'm glad they selected my photo. Like, I was like, whoa, you chose me to be on this cover. That's great.
1: How daunting was it to? venture into that space of applying for the venue i know there's a lot of like pre-selection that takes place within the university but like you know putting your your name in how did that feel
0: it was a lot it did definitely take a lot out of me but it was worth it in the end and now i'm kind of secure moving forward uh in my own research but also in just kind of living as a phd student yes What you'll learn is that PhD students, especially in Canada, don't get paid very much. And so I feel like I'm now making a livable amount on top of the other things that I uh, also manage. So uh, it's made things a bit easier for sure. Uh, And I'm very fortunate to have this opportunity. And I hope that it also gives me a a platform and stage to continue talking about not just my research, but all
1: the other stuff that I like to do. Mm -hmm. And speaking of all the other things, there are quite a few, as I mentioned in the intro. You also run a podcast, Brain Matter Chatter. I love the mm-hmm. name, by the way. What's the origin story? At what point did you come together with the other individuals who are also a part of the podcast and say, we need something like this? What was that initial moment like? The pandemic definitely brought things to light because as we were
0: chatting a bit earlier, we talked about the fact that you're supposed to kind of return to your lab as if this pandemic didn't happen and your productivity decreased to nearly zero during that time. but. Honestly students are struggling graduate students are often the last thought about when it comes to resources for mental health in academia or even just talking about it and it being uh something that is a part of the culture everyone knows that the graduate student life is a grind it's a lot of work mm-hmm. uh it's cutthroat it'll have moments of of highs and lows and it's just like accepted when it shouldn't be it's sh- that's not okay mm-hmm. <laughs> so our group was like, this would be great. And honestly, the the one who who led this initiative, Ruby Malik, also a really great friend of mine and great scientist as well, doing her PhD here at Western, mm-hmm. she was like, this is something that's been on my mind. Let's find some leaders within our graduate society, which is the Society of Neuroscience graduates, mm-hmm. graduate students. Let's yeah, let's do it. Let's just talk about it. Uh, Bring forward some insightful conversations with other scientists, with other uh, academics or former academics about this culture, about mental health as graduate students and just as academics in general, moving through different stages in our careers. So it was an easy yes. (laughs) And all of us are really excited about the work that we're doing with our season finale coming up. Soon, actually, next week, mm. uh, to continue, yeah, talking about these conversations and and hearing from others that that we're not alone in this, um, and we need to start start really changing the conversations about how we support graduate students, uh, how we support academics as they move through different stages in their careers, uh, and how do we change the culture and change the system?
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have an answer to that question?
0: What can we do to change
1: the I- <laughs> system? <laughs>
0: I do not, but I, I seem to be working on that in that sphere a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that comes with the equity, diversity, and inclusion element, yeah. which is okay, there's a lot of students that come from underrepresented groups that are moving through at least the sciences specifically in academia who tend to be uh, even further behind in support systems and environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's often ignored and neglected because of the metrics that we have in academia, right? Yes. It's about, publishing it's about getting the grants it's about having a good pi that'll support you in this and having mentorship from those who often do not look like you Mm -hmm. so how the heck are you supposed to move through your career similarly as someone who comes with a bit more privilege right yeah again it's cutthroat it's a matter of who sees your application at the right time who sees your manuscript at the right time all of that it's it's all dictated by those things and it sometimes it feels out of your power
1: yeah yeah that's the truth of it Like we're playing a game and we don't really even know, have you watched the squid game? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I have. Like you don't even know who you're playing the game for. You don't know who's watching, who's spectating. You kind of have an idea of who's in power there. But there's so many big people behind the scenes that you really do feel like a small person almost all the time. I know there were moments where I felt like that and I had to learn on the job. Like, okay, this is an important name to know. This is a person who, if they walk into a room for some reason, people react in this manner. It was almost like getting a reintroduction to the music world or something. Like, by the way, this is Beyonce. She's important (laughs) because (laughs) it was kind of like that. And I don't know if I bought into it. I struggled. I was like, okay, this person did a lot of amazing things, but does that mean that someone else who didn't isn't worth our respect? You know, yes, oh, yes, i well said, maybe they weren't able to do that thing because of the powers that be those people behind the scenes the mm-hmm. the people who, if their manuscript happens to be on their editor's desk, they go, "I know that lab. I'll pass this along to review right. versus who is this person? what lab is that, what university is that? I'm sorry you you don't even qualify, you don't meet my standards,
0: yeah. That just says something to who the powers are, right? Like, who are these people? And are we getting the right voices in there as well uh, for for some of these big decision makers? So, And that could be the difference of of one group of people getting for or moving forward in their career and other groups of people who aren't, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I do want to talk about your own mental health, if you don't mind, Mm -hmm. because you are balancing so much. You have your academics, your sports, you're obviously the, the executive director of this massive football league and you have your EDI work as well. You have the podcast. What do you do to prevent burnout? Because <laughs> just looking at all all those things, I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness, I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope you are not burnt out. And if you have burnt out, what do you do to recover?
0: Oh, yeah. Great questions. Um For some reason, I tend to thrive on being busy, so that's one thing that I picked up throughout my undergraduate, uh, even high school career, and up till now. But, I mean, there have been moments, and I will be honest, of burnout, for sure. Like, I had a forced burnout, or not a forced burnout, but a forced break, because I unfortunately did get COVID, so I had to stay home, and I actually had to do a little staycation and recover, and then focus on my, like... Honestly, just a little R&R, and I didn't realize how much I needed that until I came back into the real world and had to go back to work, although I was very behind. I was like, man, I was tired, stressed, and not thinking about my myself in that sense. And then even before that, especially during times that are super busy and heavy, there's moments where I will literally – hang out with my partner and then like something small went wrong and I will start crying and I'm like what what is happening why is this a thing (laughs) why are these tears rolling I wouldn't say it was to the point where I think I have I am struggling for mental illness fortunately I'm I think I'm lucky in that aspect but I think it's moments of okay wait I just need to revisit where I am in this present moment and if I'm Uh, in a space that i'm happy and i'm in a space that i am actually thriving or am i really taking on a lot of work but also even being slower on that work because i haven't taken a chance to actually rest and be even more efficient when i get back to it so so all those things have have definitely come across my table uh and there's moments where i just choose not to do any work in a day to kind of recover and bounce back and what I've done recently is prioritize my weekends as days that I don't book meetings, that I don't do any work. I mean, I still do research because I think being a PhD student, your hours are super blurred. So you could be doing work <laughs> at any moment in time because there's always something to do. But now I've been like, okay, my weekends, I won't do that. I'll actually take time to do stuff that I love. It uh, tends to be playing more football. tends to be watching a lot of TV. So <laughs> And I have no shame about it. I feel guilty for sure, but I've, I'm starting to get over that guilt phase now that I've kind of added it into my tool belt of recovery maybe a month ago. I wish I started it earlier, but um, those are the things that I do. And, and I I think the, the moments of burden for myself is just when things aren't going right. So when experiments aren't going right, there's something mm-hmm. that I, I really tried to advocate for and I still got rejected for it. Um, I'm not performing well on the football field, like all of those things definitely still add up, but I've been really fortunate to have some great friends to keep me kind of grounded. And then now I'm setting up boundaries for when I want to do this work and when I don't. Mm-hmm. And then I have said no a bit more. Um, and I think that, that definitely helps and people understand now cause they do understand I'm busy, but, um, and then stuff like this, like talking with you has been awesome and it keeps Yay, me like. Yeah, and it just keeps me going because I just love to chat, as you can tell. So if <laughs> other people want to hear me talk, it's it's still a break for me than than doing research and doing other work.
1: So, Do you think the pandemic affected the way, not necessarily the pandemic, but even like the BLM resurgence last year after everything that happened in the summer of 2020, affected how people received you?
0: Oh, that's a really good question.
1: I think so. And I don't know if that's a good
0: thing because I wish I was received the same way prior to all of this, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. I I've been in this work for for a while before the BLM movement, whether it be in sport, whether it be in academia, and it I think the listening started to happen a lot after. Like I wonder, at times I wonder if I applied for the Vanny scholarship maybe prior to the pandemic, prior to the BLM movement if it would have just gone over the desk and not even looked at. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't want that to ever be the case, but a lot of what I had chatted about in that application was the EDI work that I've been, like, championing for a bit of time uh, in both the sport and academic sphere. So, yeah, at the same time, I'm not mad at it because I have a platform and a voice to keep moving this forward. And it's just a matter of, how long will this stick? And I hope it does. And I'm sure other advocates in this sphere feel that I hope maybe they feel the same, maybe they don't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but, but now I'm, I, I think it just helped put the gravity of, of people's experiences, people's identities into perspective, uh, in mm-hmm. anything that they do and that it can't be ignored or unrecognized or uh, looked over, uh, or even just people can't be as ignorant as they could have been maybe prior to the pandemic. So not even that long ago. Um, So yeah, it's weird to say it out loud, but I think it's, it's kind of crappy in retrospect, but also great
1: for hopefully my future. It was a question that popped into my head because you've obviously been passionate about this for a long time, but there's no doubt in my mind that even for me, pre-pandemic, pre-summer 2020, there were certain things that I was doing that would just be considered a thing on the side, really not that important to the core aspect of who I was as a trainee. Oh yeah. And then it kind of became cool. Like, oh yeah, we should care about this kind of stuff. And I just wondered because I felt that shift and was almost irritated (laughs) by that shift. I wondered if you felt the shift and how you felt about it and yeah, thank you for answering. I'm sorry for asking. Yeah. Question. No, no,
0: don't say sorry because I, I think it was a it's an awesome question. But I, I also think what the pandemic brought to light was obviously these issues and just equity and who mm-hmm. gets what, who has access to what, who's experiencing what at this point in time, and how much have we looked over it, neglected it, and let it get to a stage where it's kind of crappy for all. Uh, a lot of groups, a lot of groups of people. So, yeah. so I just think that's what the pandemic highlighted is these in- inequities in just humanity and in, um, in in anything that we do and different systems and structures that are in place. So that's how I've always looked at it. But then I, at the same time, it popped into my head. This Your question was kind of great at at asking that is, wait a second, would this be seen the same prior to the pandemic
1: than it is now? So tough reality. It is. It's definitely a tough reality. It allows us to remind ourselves, though, that our value and the things that we do are not valuable only because someone else says so. So this work was not suddenly more valuable because of everything that transpired over the last year and a half and the last two years, but perhaps someone else began to see it as such. But that didn't change the fact that whatever you were doing was very important and was meaningful to to us as a community of minoritized individuals. And so my commendation of you does not change pre or post pandemic. That's the best way to sum up kind of that question and what you asked
0: and the value of anyone's work that they're doing. That it, yeah, really well said. So,
1: <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Olivia, for having this conversation with me. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much and i and I'm really glad you asked me to come onto the podcast and and hopefully others really enjoyed our conversation today.